0: Everybody, thank you for being here this morning. I'm actually really impressed that y'all, you know, braved uh, the weather. Hopefully no one uh, attempted any low water crossings or anything like that, but I'm glad to see you guys here and healthy and well. Um, We're going to get into uh, God's Word a little bit through story today. Last Sunday we told some stories, and when we tell honest stories as a community of God, as we share our stories, honestly, it has a way of, uh, of tightening community, of deepening community, because there's a level of vulnerability that we get to enter with each other. And as a holy script, the Bible is unique in this method of storytelling, because all of its heroes um, have a story of vulnerability through failure right? It's, it's heroes. In fact, one of, one of those being King David, a man after God's own heart, scripture says, has one of the most detailed accounts of extreme failure in all of scripture. So this Psalm that we just read, cleanse me from my iniquity, created in me a clean heart. Let me give you a little backstory of what was happening when David wrote that, what inspired this psalm. So scripture says in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the spring, it makes a note of saying, when kings go away to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. Okay, right there, that tells you David is not doing exactly what he should be doing, all right? When kings are away at war, David is staying home. Um, and it turns out that David staying home Kind of created a situation where the the fox is guarding the hen house sort of thing, right? So all of his army, his generals, his his um, his top people are are away at war. David's hanging out on the roof of his palace. He's kind of peeping on the neighbors a little bit, and he sees a woman bathing, and he says to himself, "I know everyone's away. She can just be mine, right?" So he summons her. He brings her um, to the palace. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, and then David develops this plan where he says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring her husband back, because, of course, she's married. I'll bring her husband back, and uh, I'll make it so that, uh, you know, I'll be nice to him, send him home, so that by the time he goes away to war, it'll look like she became pregnant within her marriage, right? Um, Not a super solid plan, because... By the time he would have gotten news that she was pregnant, sent for this guy, and he got back here, it would have been at least probably five or six weeks, right? So that would have been the least amount of time before um, this could even occur. So a baby that's born healthy six weeks early is kind of a red flag. So it's not the most solid plan, but David gets Uriah there, the the man whose wife David slept with. And then as soon as he... Um, gets back, you know, David tells him, go home, be with your wife, you know, thanks for the update on the war. And he says, oh no, I can't possibly do that when my countrymen and my fellow soldiers are fighting for our nation. I'll just sleep on the grounds of the palace. You know, I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to enjoy the comfort of my own bed. So David says, all right, Uh, not going as planned. He invites him back to eat with him the next night gets him drunk and says, now surely he'll go home. He doesn't. So he says, okay, new plan. Calls an audible. He writes a letter to his general saying, send this man to the front lines of the battle and when the fighting is the fiercest, have the army pull back so he gets struck down. Okay, so David has drawn not only himself, but Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with, into this sin. Now he's commanding his general the army of Israel to cover his sin. And the most ironic part, perhaps, is the man that he is trying to kill to cover his sin is delivering his own death notice by David's hand. He says, Here, take this letter here to my general, the letter that is your death sentence. Okay? He gets they pull back from him when the fighting is fiercest. He gets struck down. David kind of Does he, you know, washes his hands of the incident? In fact, he does the quote unquote noble thing. He even marries this man's widow and brings her into his house and raises this man's son as his own. This aspect, this illustration of sin, does a few things, but. In telling us this story, Scripture really harps on the vulnerability of even the most noble among us. This man, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, God's mouthpiece, his hands for this nation, gets caught up in such extreme sin. One of the points is that this could happen to any one of us. No one is above this. Sin is a universal, infinitely complex problem because it's a curse that infiltrates the very fabric of creation. Right? God's curse on creation is that the entire thing is broken. It's not just something we do. Sin is not just something we do. It's wrapped up in who we are. It's wrapped up in creation itself. We live in a fallen place. So the question becomes for us, How do you solve such a universal, complex problem when a problem is so far-reaching and so complex, so many layers, so many facets, how do you solve this problem in a universal way (coughs) to maybe illustrate how impossible this can seem on a much, much smaller scale? Take healthcare, for example. Health is a problem that everybody has. Health care is a a privilege for the people in our nation. And many years, many dollars, many hours in conversation has been spent trying to solve the problem of health. How do we pay for it? Who gets it? How everyone should have it ideally, but how do we get it to everyone without spending a ton of money and bankrupting everybody, right? This problem has as many facets as people have illness what do they need how do they get provided right we spend so much time and energy trying to solve this crisis and this problem and frankly it's impossible to do in a way that will benefit everyone and make everybody happy right this is a this is a fraction i mean this is a minuscule problem in comparison to the problem of sin that infiltrates every single aspect of our world. Sin is an impossible problem. So it's that much more surprising and beautiful that God offers such a simple solution to sin. How we combat sin. Such a simple solution. We confess it. We say it. That's it. We speak it. We make it known. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess your sins, not just to God, but to the people you're in community with, the people that your sin thwarts and harms and hurts. So how simple? How simple is this process to confess your sin? Here's... Here's how this went down. After the fact, David was not free and clear, surprise, because God knows what he did. So he sends a prophet named Nathan to tell this story that tugs on David's heartstrings. He tells him the story of injustice. And David says, how can anyone be so unfair and unjust? This guy needs to get put to death. And Nathan says, it's you. It's a metaphor. It's a parable. It's you. You are the one who is unjust. You're the one who took out of the hand of the lowest member of your society. It's you. So what does David do? Well, yeah, but I, you know, there were circumstances that you don't know about. This is a very difficult and complex situation. We're talking about the, you know, the dealings of a nation. Surely you can't possibly fathom the pressure that's on me or the complexity of my society. No, it's very simple. Nathan comes to him. He says, "You sin." David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. He confesses his sin. Nathan calls him out. David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. So then they go into this rigmarole that takes days and months and years trying to separate his sin from society, trying to make it right with the Dacian again. No, of course not. David I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Infinitely complex, impossible problem. David says, This problem is on me. I can't get out from under it. Surely I deserve death before God for all the. I did worse than the guy in the parable you told me. I deserve terrible things. I've sinned against God. Simple. Confess it. Simple solution. God has put away your sin. This is a bizarre system for us. So if it's so simple, why is it so rare? how, How often do you have someone come up to you and say, look, here's what I did. Here's how I know it affected you. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. How often does that happen? In your friendships, in this church, in your marriages, in your family, in your friendships? How often does that actually happen in the people of God that we would say, how are you doing? Actually, things suck for me right now. You know, I'm feeling guilty and, and here's why. How often do you hear this stuff? Why is this so rare? I think it's because we justify everything we do. We justify it. We try to justify it. We try to excuse it. We we call inaction, right? So we know something needs to be done. We sit on our butts. We we, we call this inaction self-care, right? I'm, I, I'm too stressed. I'm too burdened. I can't help someone else because I am just so distraught. Or we describe our faults, right? We're harsh with other people, we're quick-tempered. We we don't just tell things like it is in an honest way. We blurt and burden people with our honesty. But that's just my personality. Right? It's not a fault. It's just how God made me. This is just how I am. Now, let me be clear. We do need self-care. You do need to take care of yourself. You do have a God-given personality, but sometimes when we lean so hard on it and we don't challenge ourselves, sometimes when we don't self-examine, we end up just saying, it's impossible for me to sin. This is my personality. This is what God has given me. That's it. So we make ourselves so noble that we become unassailable. We can't confess because we can't do wrong. There is no self-examination, I think, is a big reason why we don't confess. We place more emphasis on On grace, and we want to say, Well, I want to be good with God, and I and I need God's forgiveness, and I love God's forgiveness, and we place way more emphasis on that grace than we do on our sin. So we can highlight the great, we want to highlight the grace of God. We don't want to think about bad stuff, that's a downer. We want to think about the good stuff of God, the grace of God. When it actually ends up having the opposite effect. If we're not honest about our sin, if we don't make much of our sin then we can't make much of God's grace. We become too busy and too apathetic for introspection. We don't examine ourselves because we have too much going on. Either we're doing too much or we've burdened our consciences already to the extreme where we we can't even stand introspection. And what that actually does is it undermines the grace of God that we seek. Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer wrote it this way in The Cost of Discipleship. He calls it cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness, he says, without requiring repentance. (coughs) Cheap grace is communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Now, it's not really a secret that confronting our sin is uncomfortable. Saying it aloud to somebody else is even worse, but the very hardest aspect of confessing our sin is making it a communal habit, doing it again and again and again. Acknowledging, like, I didn't just mess up. I mess up a lot. I don't just mess up a lot. I am a person characterized by my sin. That's very difficult to utter aloud. Not just to a person we trust, but even harder to confess it to the entire community of God that we are bound to in United So it's easier to opt for cheap grace. We have general confessions, right? Um, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We have a general confession. We look at the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, I do all these things. Lord, forgive me my sin. But it's to actually get into the, the weeds and say, okay, I might not have slept with someone else's spouse, but I have harbored lust in my heart. I might not have killed somebody, but I have harbored a grudge, and Christ says these are on the same level, right? It's not just, wow, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. It's a heart problem. It's an inclination of our soul to turn away from God and choose ourselves. It's not just we go to the extreme in what we do and say. It's even what we think and feel. It's even what we don't realize we're thinking and feeling. So it's harder to get in the weeds and be specific and said, here's where I actually did screw up. Here's where I did have this problem. But there's a benefit to specific confession. When we do get in those weeds, when we do confront those sins in specific ways, this is a way to take God seriously. When he says, don't do this or do this, to really dig deep and say, am I doing that? Am I not doing that? That is to take God's word seriously. We're taking our confession seriously and it's formative for us. And if it's formative for us, if it's making us more like Christ, then it's impactful for our community. So here's what Luther says about confession. He says, what sins should we confess? In the small catechism, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we're not aware of. This is, um, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, this is a more general confession, right? But before the pastor, um, and in brackets, the community of God, in the words of James, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. So what was happening to Luther is that he would freak out and spend hours with the pastor trying to think of every single insignificant sin and and name them all to the pastor because he he thought, if I don't remember one, I'm going to go to hell. And the second he left that confessional, he was already thinking something wrong again. So he turned back and He spent hours of his day, every day, just breaking his back over sin. So instead of, instead of being freed by the forgiveness of Christ, he was placing it on himself to remember all these sins. Okay? But he's saying, confess to one another those sins that burden your conscience. Don't break your back over Trying to think of every sin that you'll never realize because there are some that you won't. Okay? We're not perfect. We can't do this perfectly. But how? The question becomes then how do we confess? How much do we confess? What if I don't even feel guilty? How am I going to confess something that I don't even feel guilty of? Right? This is where he comes with that general confession Lord, forgive us our trespasses even those we don't feel guilty about. So what if I don't feel guilty? How do we confess our sins? What are some good practices? Well, it's probably helpful to know what confession is, to start with. Confession is an echo. Confession is an echo. The word in Greek that James uses, confess your sins to one another, the word that John uses, if, you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, that word is homo legeo in the Greek. It literally means say the same. Say the same about your sin that God says about it. When you confess it, you're echoing God's word about your sin. You're echoing God's take on our sin. So, We're not necessarily echoing our hearts. Okay, this is important. Okay, it's not a necessary, not necessarily an echo of our hearts. We don't just echo the things we feel bad about because there are some things we don't feel bad about, right? We don't just wait until I feel bad about something and then I'll confess it because there are sins in our lives that we commit without even thinking about it, because we don't have the band, we don't give ourselves the bandwidth for self-examination, right? So we don't just confess conviction. In other words, our feels, right? Conviction is not the same as confession. Sometimes conviction drives us to the word, to echo God's word. Sometimes we say, okay, I feel out of sorts, I feel messed up about this, we go to God's word, Sometimes conviction drives us to the word and we echo David's confession, create in me a clean heart. But sometimes the word drives our conviction, right? When Jesus says, I tell you, lusting after someone in your heart is adultery. Like, okay, I wasn't feeling convicted about adultery until I heard that. I wasn't feeling convicted about murder until I heard harboring hate and wrathfulness and being short-tempered because I have no peace. That's different. Conviction doesn't always drive confession, and that's why we echo God's word. That's why we confess God's word. So personally, when I'm under stress, I I stress eat hard. I watch Netflix. I binge. This is how I deal with stress. And you know, I wouldn't really think twice about that because I'm not hurting anybody. Right? I'm not hurting anyone. But then I go to 1 Corinthians 6 and Paul says, do you not know? Oh, sorry. 6.12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Okay, I can do things that don't hurt anybody, that aren't specifically named as sin. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. If I'm going somewhere, even if it's food or Netflix, or if it's worse, alcohol, drugs, um, adultery, like if I'm going to a place to seek comfort and peace then we have, then we have a problem. Okay? Because I'm no longer mastered by God's word at that point. I'm seeking peace from being mastered by something else. So I may not feel convicted about eating or binging. Um, I may not even feel convicted about an addiction of some kind, but God's word tells me if I'm mastered by anything but Christ, then i I'm under sin and I confess that so I start to feel conviction I confess my sins or I confess those sins for which I don't feel convicted and God is eager to align us with Christ and here's the beautiful thing if if you're not feeling convicted by something you say wow I know I should feel bad about that but I just don't then let that be your conviction God my heart's not in the right place because you're calling this a sin and I don't feel bad about it that becomes your conviction and God gives us this path back to him. He's eager to bring us back. He's eager to realign us with Christ. He's eager to kill our sin. If he wasn't, he wouldn't give us such an easy way to do it. It's simple. I have sinned against God. God has put away your sin. Done. Done. Easy. God is eager to align us with Christ heal the sin in us through our confession. So here's here's what I want you to walk away with. This is what I want you to remember from today. God hears us in mercy and heals us in grace. God hears us in mercy. In other words, you can go to Him with any sin no matter how dark, no matter how deep, no matter how long it's been in your life, no matter the consequences or the ruin that it has created, He hears it in mercy. You can take anything to Him. He doesn't strike you down. He doesn't burst you into flames. He doesn't make lightning rain down on you. He is merciful and says, bring it to me. And He heals you in grace. As soon as it's laid out, it is is His to heal. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins but let the word be the basis of our confession, not just our feelings. And, you know, when we confess God's word, it's not just confessing sin, right? We confess the other side of that too. We confess the gospel. So, we heard two types of confession here in Psalm 51. First, uh, 51 verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me." Jump down a little bit, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. All right, so here's here's the picture of how this confession thing in God's Word works. Sin is this impenetrable wall. It goes up, Is it goes As high as you can see, as far as you can see, it is a wall in all directions. God is on the other side of it, and you cannot get through it. God's word is like a crane. God's word is like a crane on the other side of that wall. And it can do two things. Cranes can do two things. You put a wrecking ball on it, and it will decimate something. That's God's law. We echo his law. We confess his law. Here's what you say sin is. Here's what I've done. I'm done for. David says, my sin is ever before me. And that the bones that you have broken, God's law breaks stuff. It tears us down. It says, this is my standard. This is what you have done. It's over. That wall has collapsed on you. Okay? This is, the wrecking, this is what the wrecking ball does. But God's word also, God's word, this crane, can also be fitted to place beams, to build up. We see like 10,000 of them at any given time on the Austin skyline, right? It is building up. It is, it is constructing stuff. God's word does both of these things. It tears down so that it can rebuild. That's what the gospel does. The bones that you have broken by the law may rejoice by your gospel. Both block our way to God. And God makes a way to himself. When we confess the law, we tear ourselves down. But when we confess the gospel, we clear away the rubble. We place beams to rebuild us in Christ so that we actually become a monument to God's glory. Look what we have done. We should be rubble. Look what God has done in building us back up. And we, the community of Christ, are a community of both types of confession. I know we want to get together and just say, look how good God is. My life is great because it has Jesus in it. And that is just half the story. It's great with Jesus because God breaks our bones by his law. It's great with Jesus because he mends those bones. He rebuilds even better than it was before. We are couriers of this word, just like Nathan was. He carries God's law to David and says, you're nothing, here's what you've done. And then right away, God has put away your sin. Gospel. We are couriers of both of these words to tear down the pride, to tear down our pride with the law, To cry as we crumble. And then to rebuild one another with the gospel. God hears us in mercy. God heals us in grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its ability to break our bones. We thank you that this unsolvable problem of sin is no match for the might of your word. So Lord, tear us down in our sin. Rebuild us in Christ by your gospel. And Father, give us the courage and the strength of heart to be witnesses of this word, every single one of us just as Christ is prophet and priest and king, and he dwells in all of us, so we are all of those things. We not only have the duty to carry that word to each other, but we have the privilege of carrying that word to each other because you make that word valid in our mouths. You turn us into megaphones that speak your truth truth that would break our bones and truth that would mend our bones in Christ give us the courage to confess the courage to echo what you have said about us about your world and especially about your son thank you for your grace and thank you for such a simple way forward if only we would trust you if only that we would trust one another heal us Lord hear us in mercy and heal us in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.